Well, um, we now uh, come to the time of the service where we're going to hear uh, God's word spoken to us. We're going to um, start our new sermon series. So through this term uh, up to Easter, we're going to be doing a sermon series we call God Is. And this is a fantastic opportunity where we're going to be looking at different aspects of God's character and nature. We'll show us who he is. We look at who he is. And in that moment, we start to understand more and more what it means for us to know him and relate to him. And so Dan's going to kick off that sermon series. He's going to uh, open that up, introduce us to that uh, this week. Uh, so Dan, why don't you come up and I'll, I'll pray for you, uh, as you as you begin. Father God, we um, ask as Dan uh, speaks, as your spirit has been with him, as he's prepared and read and written, and as your spirit speaks through him, as he uh, declares your truth this morning, we pray that our hearts would be open to hear you, that we would be shaped and changed, and that as our eyes are open to more and more of who you are, that our worship would increase, our lives would be changed, and your glory would just go out throughout the whole earth, we pray. Bless Dan as he shares with us. Thank you uh, for who he is. Thank you for his blessing to us. Uh, and we pray that, yeah, we would each be changed this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good to see everyone. Happy New Year. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Josh. Very kind. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me repeat that. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a quote by a Christian author called A.W. Tozer. I wonder what you think about that. I think he's onto something. I think he's got a good point. Because if you think about it, if our walk with God is the most important thing in our lives, and I would hope we all agree that that's the case, that our walk with God is the most important thing in our lives, then surely knowing the God that we walk with has got to be something that makes a massive difference to the way we live. I mean, you can see that when you think about it a little bit. If you believe that God is a distant, disinterested judge who is only interested in calling out all of your problems, you're going to live your life plagued by fear. You're going to live your life going through life thinking, have I done enough to please him? Have I done enough to satisfy him? Have I not done enough bad stuff that he's, just, he's not going to be grumpy with me? It's going to affect the way that you live. On the flip side, and tragically, many people throughout history have done absolutely horrific atrocities because they don't believe in a God of justice, because they don't believe in a God who's going to hold them to account one day. So the, the way that you think about God, what you think about God matters. It makes a difference to our day-to-day -day lives. And ultimately, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we believe that the Bible teaches that we were created in order to love God and to worship him. That's what we were created for. That's our purpose in life. And so we're never gonna find ultimate and genuine satisfaction unless we're worshiping the true God, because that's what we were made for. And so what we think about God really matters which is why, as Luke said, we're starting this new teaching series called God Is, and we're going to be looking every single week. The, the title's intentional, it's kind of God Is, and then we insert something every single week. So God Is This, God Is This. And we're going to spend each week looking at a different aspect or attribute of what God is like um, and look at what the Scriptures say about it. And the idea really is that as we do that, it's, well, there's a few things. One thing is it becomes fuel for our time of praise afterwards. 
So if you think of praise and worship corporately as a furnace, then knowing more about what God is like is like putting logs in the fire. So we respond as we behold and look at the God that we're worshipping. We respond by having, I think, more meaningful, perhaps, whatever word you want to use, times of worship. So that's one thing that I think we hope to achieve. Another thing that we're hoping to achieve, probably more broadly, is that it's going to transform us. That as we look at who God is, we ourselves become transformed as we do that. Like I said, it changes the way that we live because we generally tend to live based on the assumptions that we make about God. And so if we're able to make sure we're thinking clearly about who God is, that's going to make a difference to the way that we live. So that's what we're aiming for. But there's a final thing that we're also going to make sure that we do every single week. And that is for us to remember that we are Christians, which means we are those who believe that there is one who has truly revealed who God is. And that's Jesus. In John 1 verse 18, it says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. So no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. Jesus reveals what God is like and makes God known. So in this series, every week, as we look at one of the aspects of God's character, one of the attributes of God, we're also going to be asking the question, how is it that Jesus also points to this? How is it that Jesus reflects this particular aspect of what God is like? And that's going to help us to grow in our relationship with him. So I'm looking forward to this. I've loved preparing this series, looking forward to preaching in it. I'm trusting and praying that God is going to transform us as we look at who he is. And as Luke said, this week's a bit of an introduction week. Uh, So it's a bit of an introduction to the series. We're going to be exploring today, why does it matter what we think about God? And we're going to do that by looking specifically at a foundational reality. God is not like us. So that's the, the topic for today. God is not like us. And we're going to use that as a way of talking about, uh, well, partly the fact that God is not like us, but also exploring why does it matter? Why, why is it that what we think about God really does make a difference and why it matters? So we're going to be in Isaiah 55, if you've got your Bibles. Um, we are going to read the whole chapter, but I'm not necessarily going to explain the whole chapter. So what you might notice in this series is this might be a bit of a different series to when we usually go through a particular book of the Bible. So if we're going through a book of the Bible, we want to try and make sure that we're basically pretty much explaining the whole passage. Um, That might not be the case quite as much in this series because we're focusing on specific parts of God's character. So we're going to read the whole of Isaiah 55. It's a wonderful chapter, but we're not going to explain everything in it. I'm going to be focusing on specific parts of it. But let's read Isaiah 55 together. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labour for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of God. Humanity, human beings, have always been in danger of making God in their image. What generally tends to happen throughout history, and you can see that in not just in Christianity, but in pretty much all religions throughout history, is you notice that human beings have a tendency to take things about themselves and project them onto the God that they worship. And so what we tend to do is we can tend to be in, in danger of doing a few things. One of those is we take the things that we like or we think that are good about human beings and we end up thinking that God is basically a better version of that. So nowadays, as a culture, we like what's, what's one of the ultimate virtues at the moment? It would be the idea of tolerance and acceptance. Good things. But what then happens, I don't know if you've noticed, in a lot of the way that uh, we can think about God, is that God becomes the ultimate, easygoing, agree-to-disagree-with, tolerant person. Essentially, God is turned into a super-duper Western liberal person. Now, if you look throughout history, you'll realise that each culture throughout their time tends to do that with the things that they prize the most, with the things that they think are really good about human beings. We can tend to make God in our own image. Or we can do it with negative things. So we can think, well, you know what? I, 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 I myself am an impatient person and I get really grumpy that... I have a suspicion that God must be a really grumpy person, that he's out to get me, basically. And we project that onto God. Or sometimes we even take things that the Bible says are true about God. So thinking of patience again, the Bible says God is patient. And what we do is we look at our lives and we think, okay, I'm not very patient, which must mean that if God is very patient, then he's basically much more patient than I am. And so we start to quantify how patient God is based on how impatient we are but what we've done in the process, we've not actually done justice to how patient God actually is. And so human beings are constantly in danger of distorting what God is like because we can operate with the assumption, you know what, he's basically a little bit like me, but just better. Or a little bit like me, but just worse. And the problem with that is the Bible has a word to describe that. And it's a danger that all of us, I think, are prone to. But the word the Bible uses to describe that is idolatry worshipping something other than the true God. 
And I think when we think of idolatry, I think we often think of the idea of consciously replacing God with another thing. So instead of worshipping the true God, we worship a car or we worship money or we worship our spouse or just a plain old statue, as was the case throughout, throughout a lot of history. But there's actually another, I think, more dangerous, more subtle way that we can be in danger of idolatry. And that's by taking the true God and thinking of him in a way that isn't actually true of him where we construct actually what is a God that's different to the God that we claim to worship. So if we look at Exodus 20, so I'm sure everyone here will be familiar with the idea of the Ten Commandments. They were commandments that God gave to his people Israel in the Old Testament. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods but me. Don't worship any other gods. But then there's a separate second commandment that feels like it's saying the same thing. It says this, Exodus 20 verses four to five. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So don't worship other gods, but also don't make anything that looks like a created thing and worship that, which obviously could cover other gods. But God is also warning his people against trying to represent him as a created thing and worship that. So it's not just don't worship other gods explicitly, it's don't try to depict what the true God is like and worship that. And Israel actually did this a few times. In the, um, some of you may be familiar with the story of the golden calf where Israel made a golden calf and they bowed down and worshiped this golden calf. They didn't think they were worshiping a different God. They thought that they had created a depiction of the true God. But God said, that's idolatry. You're not actually representing me truly. And the same can be true when we think of God in a way that's not true. We can end up worshipping a God who's not actually the true God. And so that's, that can be a danger. And so hopefully you're seeing that what we think about God really does matter. And the problem is this. If we think of God as in some way like us, or we end up thinking of God in a way that's not true of him and we're in danger of idolatry, that's actually going to lead to us being dissatisfied and anxious. And that's the problem actually in this passage. Now, if you notice, it's an invitation for, to Israel to come to the true God. If you read the passage carefully, you'll, you'll notice it seems that at least some people, in God's people amongst God's people in Israel are thinking of God as if he was a bit like them. And God is inviting them to come back to the true God. And if you look at the language that's used, you realise that God is saying, when you go to something that isn't me, even if you think it's me, you end up dissatisfied and you end up anxious and you end up not getting the real deal. Look, have a look at verse two. God says this to his people, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labour for that which does not satisfy. He's saying, when you're going, you're putting your trust in other things. Or even when you think that you're worshipping the true God, but you're assuming that he's a bit like you, it's like you're taking your hard-earned money and you're going to the bakery to buy bread and you buy a loaf of rock or a loaf of something that isn't actually bread. I don't know if I've, have any of you ever bought a, like, hopefully unwillingly, a counterfeit item where you think that you're buying the real deal? Very often it happens when you go on holiday and you go to a shop by the beach and you go in and you notice, oh, there's, a, there's an Adidas cap and you buy it and you take it home and you put it on and you realise it says Daddy Das. 
and you look at all of the sewing and it's just, it's not high quality. Or you go to another shop and you think, oh my goodness, there's the Apple Watch for 50 quid and you buy it and you turn it on and it says Bapple Watch and it doesn't work and the touch screen's broken and you realize I've got a counterfeit. I've got a cheap imitation. That's what it's like when we worship a God who is not the true God. And God wants to warn us lovingly away from that. So a lot is at stake when it comes to the way that we think about God. Our joy is at stake. So hopefully you can see why this is not just an exercise for the theologians amongst us, those of us who like to think deep thoughts about the Bible. This is something that is relevant to all of us because we want to be those who think about the God that we worship and know what he's really like. So the question is, how do we make sure that we are thinking about God rightly? How do we make sure that we're not falling into the trap of projecting what we're like and assuming that he's just a better version of that? And the answer we can find out is in verses two to three. So in the second half of verse two, God says this, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. The answer is we need to listen to God. We need to listen to what he says about himself. In other words, this passage is saying you don't turn inwards to think about God, you turn outwards. We turn to what God says, which is why in this series, what we're going to be doing is looking to the word of God. We don't want to fall into the trap of thinking, what would I like God to be like? Or what do I think God is like? We want to ask the question, what does God say that he's like? Which is why we're going to be looking to the scriptures and we're going to be asking, what does the Bible say God is like? Because this is what God's encouraging us to do here. He's saying, listen to me. If you, and the reward is amazing. Look at that. It's not just listen to me, guys. Come on, seriously. It's listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. What a wonderful image as we listen to what God says, and obviously in the passage, it's not just talking about listening to what God says about himself, but that's obviously the focus we're going for this series. But as we listen to God, we suddenly find ourselves going, you know what, I'm feeling increasingly satisfied. Even as I'm listening to the parts of God's character that I wouldn't naturally feel like I like, because I'm listening to him, I'm suddenly finding, I feel like I'm feasting. I feel like I'm being built up. I feel like I'm suddenly finding my purpose in life. And I've realised that the thing that I was worshipping beforehand or the way I've been thinking about God has been leading me, leaving me dissatisfied. So we're going to make sure that we're not turning inwards over this series, we're turning outwards to the word of God. So having said that, the reason, one, of the, one of the reasons we can't turn inwards is because as I've said, and as this passage says, as we'll read in a minute, God is not like us. If God was like us, we could turn inwards. We could say, okay, well, if God is like us, let's look at what we're like, and that helps us understand what God is like. But the problem is, because God is not like us, we can't turn inwards, so we turn to the word of God. And the word of God tells us in verses six to nine, which is where we're going to spend most of the rest of our time, it says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as high as the heaven, so as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the, the key phrase there is in verse eight. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. What a wonderful phrase. What a wonderful way of describing what God is like. Now, very often, sometimes we quote these, um, these verses. So, oh, his ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. And what we often mean by that is, I'm going for a really puzzling time in my life and I need to remember God's ways aren't my ways. He knows what he's doing. Now that's true, but that's not actually what these verses are talking about. These verses aren't a way of saying, God's ways are mysterious, we'll never understand them. In fact, these verses are saying, in many ways, the opposite. It's saying God wants us to know what his thoughts are. He wants us to know his ways, but he needs us to realise his ways and his thoughts are different to ours. So have a look at verse seven and verse eight. Look, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And then a verse later it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. God's saying, you can't look at the way that sinful human beings act and think in order to find out what I'm like. I don't think in the same way that they do. I don't act in the same way that they do. I am not like you. And so God wants us to know what he's like. This is not, although it's true that we will never fully understand God and there's an infinity about God that we'll never understand, what this passage is doing is saying, God wants us to know what, he, what he's revealed himself as and we need to start by realising we can't look inwards in order to figure that out. We need to realise he is different. He is not like us. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no similarities at all. Okay, so it doesn't mean that there's no way in which we are somehow a bit like God because we're called to imitate God. Also, we're made in the image of God. So there are many, many ways in which human beings and gods are, have similarities. But the point that's being made here is fundamentally, God's not a better version of us. The distance between us and God is infinite. He is not like us. There are ways in which we reflect him. There are ways in which we're called to imitate him, but he's not just a better version of us. And that is really, 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 really good news. Because it would actually be scary to worship a God who was basically just like us, but just better. But we worship a God who is not like us. And that's true in so many ways. And we're going to look at a number of those throughout this series. But let's just really briefly pick up on three ways that this passage, I think, highlights that God is not like us. First of all, there's the fact that God is not like us because he never does anything wicked. And that's, I think, that I think is primarily what this passage has in mind because it's a call, it's calling God's people, it's calling those amongst God people, God's people who are unrighteous and wicked to turn away from that and to turn to the true God because he is not thinking the same way that they are. He's not acting in the same way that they are. He is not wicked, he's not unrighteous. That, so I think that's what the passage is talking about. God wants us to know there are things that we do that are wrong. I'm sure all of us will put our hands up and admit to that. And if you put your hand up and say, no, Dan, I've never done anything wrong, then well done, you have just committed the first sin in your life, that of pride. <laughs> we all know. We have all done things wrong. We have all done things that we would describe as wicked. We have all had things done to us that we would describe as wicked. And God wants us to know that's not the case with him. There has never, ever been a moment where God has ever done anything that wasn't 100% good, right and loving. 
And that's an awesome and comforting thought. To know that however puzzled we are about the way God is acting in our lives, to know that there has never been a moment where he has ever even entertained a thought of doing anything wicked is hugely comforting. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They are so much better. Another way that God's not like us, which is not quite as much the emphasis in the passage, but I think it does come out, is in verse 7. God is not like us because his forgiveness never runs out. Let's reread verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God's saying to those who are wicked in his people, come back to me and as you come back to me, I will have compassion on you. Come back to me and as you do that, I will forgive you. When we think, I I would really struggle to keep forgiving that person. You know, had those moments, we know we're called to forgive as Christians, but those moments where you think, I don't know how much longer I can go on forgiving this person. I wouldn't have the patience to keep forgiving, so surely God won't forgive me. That can be a way that we might subconsciously think. In those moments where we think, because I struggle to forgive, that must mean that God can't forgive me. I've blown it. That's it. That was the final straw. I've just sinned and there is no way that God can forgive me now because I wouldn't and God's a better version of me. We can remember this. He will abundantly forgive. Let the wicked come to me that I may have compassion on him and that I may abundantly pardon. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They are so much better. If any of you are here today and you are questioning whether it's possible for God to continue to forgive you, you need to look at this passage and you need to remind yourself you can't take the fact that you would struggle to forgive as an indication that God will struggle to forgive. The lengths that he went to to forgive us by having his son crucified on the cross show us that God abundantly forgives. His ways are not like ours. And then finally, I think the final way that we see in these verses that God is not like us is that God is not like us because when he promises something, it always happens. Let's have a look at verses 10 to 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. In other words, I'm going to do what I said I would do. How many people here have broken promises? I hope, I imagine all arms are going to go up. That was not me just doing the speaker thing. where You know where speakers sometimes put their hand up just to get people to put their hands up? I've broken promises. Sometimes that's been because I've made a massive mistake and have ended up deciding to break a promise. Sometimes we just end up with circumstances, which mean I've made this promise, but because of these circumstances, I actually just can't keep it now. That never happens to God, ever. That has never happened to God. Has God made promises in his word? His promise here is the word that goes out of his mouth shall not return to him empty, which is a wonderful image, a way of saying whatever God says will happen. So we know that when God says things like, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that he means that. That we don't go around thinking, well, there were circumstances that happened once when I made a promise that meant that I couldn't keep it. Is that going to happen with God? And the answer is no. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are so much better. 
We can listen to the passage that Luke read out at the start when we were mourning the loss of John that says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's categorically true. There's no exceptions to that. There are no circumstances where God suddenly goes, oh, I meant that, but actually now I can't apply that promise. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. When God says something, it's true. And that's because his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They are so much better. And there's so many, many other ways that God is not like us. And we're going to look at a number of those in the series. There are some ways in which God is categorically non-like us in the sense that we, don't, we can't even imitate that. There are other ways in which God is, God is like us in the sense that, for example, God is love. We can express love, but the love of God is so infinitely more than us that we can also say his love is not like us. So, there's so in, in that sense, everything that God is, is unlike us in one way. And we're going to look at many, many ways over this series that, that that's the case. But we need to start with this foundation because if we go into this series thinking God's basically a better version of me, we're going to run into the danger of falling into idolatry and that's going to run us into the danger of living lives that ultimately feel flat and unfulfilling and are not fulfilling the purpose to which we were called. Whereas when we look at the true God and say, fundamentally, he's not like me, then we find ourselves going, that's good news. I want want to worship a God who is like that. And so that's got to be one of the foundations in our understanding of God. And so as we come into land, what I want to do is to invite us back to the beginning of the passage which I haven't really spoken about verse one. So we kind of talked about verse two, which talks about here's the danger of idolatry. But this passage, I don't know if you noticed, is an invitation that God is giving his people to come to him. It's an invitation to come to know the living God. And verse one says this, this is God speaking. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price and without money. It's an invitation to come to the living God. And I don't know if you know, but this is an invitation that Jesus also gave. John 7, verses 37 to 39 say this. See if you notice any similarities. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not glorified. Jesus stood up and proclaimed the same words as God proclaimed in Isaiah. And that's obviously because Jesus is God. When we read Isaiah 55, when we read this invitation, we can read it and realise Jesus is the one who makes that invitation possible. Jesus is the one who makes the invitation to come and know the true living God possible. And Jesus stands up and he proclaims the same words now now, today. He says, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone feels like they're not focused on the living God in their life, 
If anyone has a hunger to know the true God, if anyone has a hunger to know what he's really like, if anyone has a hunger to live a life of loving him, come to me and drink. Jesus' work at the cross and Jesus' work by rising from the dead have made it possible for us to come to know God. If Jesus hadn't done that, if Jesus hadn't died and been raised from the dead, the invitation in Isaiah 55 would sound wonderful, but it wouldn't be possible. We wouldn't actually be able to come to God. We wouldn't be able to come to know him. We wouldn't be able to come and experience the thrill and joy of knowing our father. But because Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead and then poured the spirit out, we can read Isaiah 55, which invites us to come to the waters. And those of us who are believers can say, I can experience that because Jesus has poured the Holy Spirit out. And those of us who are not believers can say, I'm thirsty, I wanna to come to Jesus. And if that's you, I wanna speak just for a, a minute to those who are here and perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Uh, you might be exploring, you're very, very welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. But as I've been speaking, you've been thinking, I would love to come to know the true living God. The good news for you today is that there is someone who has made a way so that you can respond to that invitation. And his name is Jesus. And he's the one that we worship. And in a way that blows all of our minds, he is the true living God. And if you're in that position and you would love to come to know God, I would love to speak to you after and to talk to you about what it means to come to follow Jesus so that you can respond to that invitation to come to God. But this is an invitation for all of us, whether we are non-Christians or Christians. And so for those of us here today who have put our trust in Jesus, who've been baptised into him, who, have, who are following Jesus, this invitation still stands. And I would love us in a minute to respond by taking communion, I think it's a wonderful picture of this invitation to come and feast with God and to remind ourselves as we're taking it, the only reason I can come and feast with God is because of the body of Jesus that was broken and the blood of Jesus that was poured out. And so we can take communion to remember what Jesus has done to allow us to come to know the God who is not like us. And then as we respond in praise and in singing, why don't we invite the Holy Spirit to have his way in our lives? Those of us who are in Christ have received the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the one who is able to make known God to us. And so as we worship, as we respond, as we fix our gaze on Jesus, as we take communion together, why don't we allow the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us, to illuminate these truths in our hearts, to confirm them in our hearts. So why don't we stand, if you are able, and if the band can come up, that would be, uh, that would be wonderful. So what we're going to do is I'm going to pray in a second and then we will take a few minutes to take communion together. So if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, this is a, a meal for those of us who are followers of Jesus. You, the, practically speaking, you can peel the, the, the film off of the top and you get a wafer, which represents the bread. And then you peel the second layer off and you get uh, juice representing the wine. And so why don't we take communion together? We could do that in groups, we can pray with each other, but we'll take a few minutes to do that. And then as we finish that, the band will lead us in singing and we are gonna expect that the Holy Spirit is gonna take the truths that we've been hearing from his word and is gonna turn them to songs of worship and is gonna turn them into transformed lives. So let me pray and let us respond in worship.
Father, I thank you that your thoughts are not our thoughts. I thank you that your ways are not our ways. Because if your thoughts were our thoughts, there's no way that we would have dreamt up the idea of God himself taking on flesh and being crucified for our sins and rising from the dead. If you, were, if you were like us, we would be in serious trouble. But I thank you that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are your thoughts than ours. And Father, we thank you that this invitation to come to know you is for all of us. And I pray, Father, that you would help those of us who are here who don't know you to respond to that invitation. Pray you'd help those of us who are here and who do know you to respond to that invitation to know you more. And Father, I pray as we take communion now, you would help us to remind ourselves of the one who has made it possible to respond to that invitation. And as we praise, I pray by your spirit, would you be transforming our minds? Would you be uh, stirring praise in our hearts? Would you be stirring prophetic words and contributions and ways of building one another up? We want to know you. We want to come to the waters. And we want to come to know more deeply the God whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are not our ways. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.